Well, if you've been uh, with us for the last number of weeks, you know that we're doing a study of the book of Ephesians, and we're nearing the end of the book, and, I decide, and, and Paul is going to begin, the Apostle Paul is the author, he's going to begin to conclude the book um, in chapter 6. So I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, it's on page 1821 in your Bible, but I'm also going to refer to a couple other places in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 and chapter 4, um, because Paul is making an argument. He's making a, um, he's trying to help the Ephesians understand that there is a direct connection between what they believe, their identity in Christ, and what they do, the way that they live their lives. So chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are a theological message about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how to find your identity in Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the prayers that he's praying for them, and he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So he's trying to get them to understand the God who you know has power and strength and gets all the glory, and you belong to him. You, your identity is found in who God is. That's chapters 1 through 3 in a nutshell. Chapters 4 through 6 are, if that's true, how do you live that out? So practical ways to live out the reality that our identity is in Christ in the end of the book. So the last several weeks we've looked at how to interact with children and parents, husbands and wives in the church community, uh, in the workplace, in your vocation in life, in your relationships with other people. Chapters, uh, chapter 4, the beginning, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord then, meaning you belong to God, your identity is found in him, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing in one another, with one another in love. And so now Paul is taking these two ideas together and concluding his letter with this call to action that brings that theology and the practice together, reminding us that understanding who you are in Christ, your identity, and the way that you live your life matters. It matters to God and it matters to the people around you. Because there's more going on than just what we see day to day. There's more going on than just the routine daily tasks of our lives. Yes, those are taking place. And yes, there are small things that are happening in our lives around us. But there is more at stake and there's more happening around us than just what we can see. We are actually in a spiritual battle. And God has given us everything that we need to be able to stand in the midst of it when we put our trust in him. So Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17, the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We'll stop there. That's a lot. (laughs) I first uh, remember contemplating the reality of that spiritual battle. I mean, I'd heard about angels and, and everything before this, but in high school, I read a book called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Some of you, I recognize some people that were in the Christian world in the 80s and 90s are, are shaking their heads, yeah. It's a novel. Peretti was an auth, uh, a novelist, so it's a fictional story, but he tries to take what might be happening in the spiritual world and give it these kinds of images of Uh, angels and demons as warriors battling against each other, and our lives, the world that we live in, is the battleground where it's taking place. Now, of course, it's fictional, and uh, Peretti doesn't know more than what's been told to us in Scripture, Um, so you can take that too far, but there is a real spiritual world that is spoken of in the Scriptures. Angels are clearly real as messengers and agents of God working on behalf of, on behalf of his purposes. And there are fallen angels or demons and the evil one, Satan, who are, are working against the purposes of God and working against his people. You can't read the Bible and not see this heavenly realm, this spiritual realm that exists alongside the physical realm that we see around us now. So there's a heavenly host out there that's either watching and praising God and working with him or actively working against him. I'll read verse 12 again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's clear. In Scripture, spiritual warfare warfare takes place in many different ways. It takes place on a personal level, so you think of the story of Job, or of King Saul, uh, or even the Apostle Paul himself, where it talks about there being a battle being waged internally against the person. The spiritual battle takes place between peoples and nations. If you think of the ancient people of Israel and their uh, conflict with the nations around them, that there's some kind of a geographic reality to the purposes of God and the, what's going on in the heavenly realms. And spiritual warfare takes, warfare takes place in culture and society as forces of evil seek to turn people away from God, movements of societies and cultures. The, the evil one is at work distracting God's people or those who may come to know God from understanding him. So false religion and other things that might pull us away, pull our attention away from the spiritual reality that's around us. And I'm sure many of you can imagine ways in which you see a spirit of evil in your world, your own life, or maybe in society at large around us, in our culture, materialism, injustice, 
uh, the distortion of God's intent for family. There are so many ways that the culture around us works against what it means to be a follower of the one true God. Now, this passage is not meant to make us spend our whole lives wondering if every action and every circumstance that we're facing is somehow uh, influenced by something happening in the spiritual world. It's not meant to say that every moment of every day and everything that happens, there's a spiritual content to that. No. The point that Paul makes is, is that there is a very real spiritual realm beyond this world and this life, and the battleground is over our souls. It is over our relationship with God and our relationships with other people. In the same way that we acknowledge that there is a God who came and died and rose again, we, we, you all are here, so no, you can't pretend ignorance. <laughs> we believe that there is a God that, we, that is unseen most of the time, and we worship this God and believe that God is at work in our lives. If that is true, if there's a God that, it's wor- that is at work, then we also must re- recognize that there's a very real enemy who's working against us. As much as God is for us and loves us and cares for us, there is someone, those that desire our harm spiritually. We're in a spiritual battle in the world that we live in. Now, this is an unpopular idea, I think, especially in our modern enlightened culture, and I think the evil one likes it that way, if we want to pretend that there's not a spiritual realm. We would much rather ignore the reality of a world that we can't see or understand or control. And so I think my guess is, I don't know if you feel this way, I I do, for a lot of you this may feel like a scary idea, what I'm raising right now, what Paul is raising in the scripture. And we don't want to feel scared. But Paul's point is not that we should be afraid. Far from it. We do not need to feel scared because our God is greater and has ultimately won this conflict already. The end is not in doubt when it comes to the spiritual conflict, but the war continues on. Let me explain what I mean by that. In every war, there's a turning point after which victory is ensured or not, right? In every, every great battle that's taken place, every great conflict between nations, there's always a turning point at which the end is already assured, but the fighting continues, right? We're watching a war unfold before our eyes in Ukraine right now. Putin and the Russians thought that they would take the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv, in just a few days, possibly a week or two. Well, guess what? Because of the resistance of the Ukrainian people and the skill of their military and aid that came from other countries, that didn't happen. And now the battle, the, the conflict has turned and the outcome is now not so certain. In other wars, when conflict comes in, when aid comes in, the, the, the end of the war is almost assuredly decided, even though biting, the, the battle and the fighting might continue. Now, if Ukraine hadn't been supplied by the U.S. and Europe, it, this war likely would actually be over by now, right? But there's been this turning point, and now it, it's unsure. Has the fighting stopped in Ukraine? No. In fact, when, when those with evil intent who have created conflict begin to lose the battle, 
often rage takes over and the battle gets even more fierce because they know that the end is sure. An evil aggressor that's, that's losing usually fights even harder. And so it is with these spiritual forces that are arrayed against us. They know that Jesus has won, saving us from death, but they rage against us anyway. This is why Paul, is, it's so important for him to, re, to remind his people to pay attention to the spiritual reality of your life. Because you have already been given victory in Christ. So when those losses come, those struggles come, when that evil comes against you, you need to know that the victory has already been won. Uh, calling back your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, that prayer that he prayed. He says, I pray that your eyes may be enlightened, that you may know the hope he's called you to, and his incomparably great power for you who believe. And then he goes on to say, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also into the, in the one to come. That, that's it, past tense he's saying. He exerted this in Christ, raised him from the dead, and has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, putting everything under Jesus' feet. Paul does not seem to be concerned about who has won the war. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that is the turning point in this war that we're in. What we celebrate at, in Holy Week and Easter in a couple of weeks, that assured victory for God and for his children and for his people. Death has lost its sting. Your salvation is secure if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. We do not need to be afraid of the spiritual battle, but we do need to be prepared for it. And what is required when the battle is, has turned is that those who are in God's army would stand firm. And Jesus has given us everything we need to be able to withstand and to fight this battle. And so, uh, that's what the remainder of the passage is about. And <clears throat> how do we stand firm? Well, we put on the armor of God. And, and once again, Paul comes up with this great metaphor for understanding what it means to be clothed with the security that we found in Christ. He uses the image of a soldier outfitted for battle with each piece of equipment representing a spiritual reality that we must remember and have embedded in our hearts when we walk through the world. The first is the belt of truth. Satan's primary weapon is lies. It's deceit. It's the distortion of the truth. Think back to the very first thing that the evil one did in the garden was twist a truth of God into a lie for Adam and Eve. The evil one distorts things that are good by making them turn wrong, by using them for evil and calling us to do the same. And so we must not participate in the lies. We must be willing to stand for what we know is true. The truth that's been revealed to us in God's world, word and the truth about the reality of the world that we live in, not living according to lies anymore. 
The follower of Jesus who wears the belt of truth is continually pursuing character that's defined by integrity and, and reliability and faithfulness to what we know to be true. So don't tell other people lies and don't tell yourself lies and go along with something that you know is not true or right. The belt of truth is the starting place. One of the lies that the enemy tells us is that we are not good enough to be a child of God, that our sins run too deep, that you've wandered too far away. You're not worthy to be called a child of God. And so the second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. Do not believe that lie. If you belong to Jesus, you have been given a new heart. He has imparted his righteousness to you. He covers your heart. Where does a breastplate go? It's like a chain mail, right, that goes over protecting your inner organs, right? Nothing can penetrate. If you belong to Jesus, you have been given a new heart and God's spirit in you. God's righteousness has been established in you by Jesus. Your heart is protected and, and so you're covered. And because of that protection, because God has given you his righteousness, now you are called to live righteously in the way that you handle yourself. You're being transformed. And there's in the Gospel of Matthew, the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long to be more like God because he has given his goodness to us. So truth, righteousness. It also says feet that are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That one's a, a mouthful. When you truly know that you're at peace with God, if, if, if this reality of my vertical relationship with God that has been established, if that is true, then there is peace, and I am now free and ready for action in the world around me. If all of that's true, then we have the best news in the world to be able to share with other people, right? And the way we live and what we say about God in this world matters. And we've been given everything that we need to be able to proclaim it, not just in the things that we do by the way we live, but in the things that we say as well. You have a purpose in God's kingdom. You're, you're ready to serve. The fourth one is the shield of faith in verse 16. Let me read that one again. It says, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The image here is not of one of the little, um, like, round shields. The Roman shield that Paul is probably referring to would have been man-size, a big piece of wood bound together by metal. And enemy armies that would attack the Romans would shoot flaming arrows because wooden shields, right? How do you, how do you beat a wooden shield? You set it on fire, right? Well, they would then, what the Romans started doing is either soaking the shields in water or they would soak leather in water and put it over the top of the field so that, shield, so that when the arrow hit, the flame would go out. And so this is what faith is. Putting your trust in the God who saves is like standing behind a full body shield. Nothing can get through it. Even the attacks that come that might try to penetrate that faith get extinguished immediately when they hit it. 
This is what protects us from the lies and the struggles and the losses that the enemy throws at us. Faith, putting our trust in God alone. And it's not the amount of faith. There are some, um, there's some teaching within the Christian church that that there's some kind of um, portion of faith that you need more faith somehow in order to have this shield of protection. It is not the amount of faith. It is the person you put your faith in. It is Jesus Christ and the fact that I'm putting my faith in him so that the, the, you know, that one of the apostles when um, asked, do you believe? He says, yes, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief, right? Yes, I have faith in you, but if it's not enough, Lord, make up the difference for me and help me to stand under attack. The person we put our faith in is what matters. The fifth one is the helmet of salvation. And uh, I shared this earlier with the kids and Lee, thanks. We're, we're going to get Lee to do a children's message um, sometime just on the different parts of this helmet, the visor and the, uh, the oxygen and everything. But when, a, when a, a soldier puts on a helmet, what is it that they're protecting? The brain, right? <laughs> the, the place where the thoughts and the ideas and the come from. You know, there's, a, um, there was a, there's two places that we think of as the most important, right? The head and the heart, right? If you can protect the head and you can protect the heart, then you probably have a pretty good chance of surviving the battle, right? So what protects the head? Salvation. Jesus is the one who saves you, like a helmet. You don't add anything to the helmet, you just put it on. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you have put salvation on, there is nothing that can damage you, and he imparts his righteousness to you. So you have that breastplate of righteousness protecting your heart. It is what Jesus accomplished on the cross that makes salvation possible for us and is the thing that protects us. And then finally, the only offensive weapon listed, the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God. What God has revealed to us about who He is is all that we need to know to be able to stand firm in this way. But to wield this sword, what do we have to do? We have to pick it up. We have to, we have to understand it. We have to seek to know who God is and who he's told us to be. And he has given us everything that we need to know in the scriptures. We have to get our content, this is very important, we have to get our content about who God is and about who we are in him from him, not from the culture around us, not from our own ideas for sure, not from what we feel but from what God has revealed about who he is to the world. The sword of the Spirit is the only weapon that can be used to do battle in this spiritual warfare. God will reveal himself to you in his word if you pick it up. Which you're doing because you're here today to hear it, right? So ultimately, the fight that we're in has nothing to do with our ability to overcome the power of sin in our life, and to overcome the darkness that is in the world around us. 
all of the all of these parts of the suit of armor that God has given us are true and real because they're attributes of who God is himself. They're distinguishing marks of what it means to follow God because they are part of the character of God themselves. He's, he's called us into battle and he's given us everything that we need because he's given us part of who he is. So, God is truth, right? We are to be therefore full of truth by buckling the belt on. God is righteous. He's the only one who's good enough, right? And so he covers us in his righteousness and we become more like him. God proclaims the good news of peace. God is the only one who can make peace with himself and with one another. And so we're ready to proclaim this good news too and to be people that are about making peace with God and bringing other people to make peace with him as well. God is faithful in Scripture. His unconditional love extends throughout all generations. And so we are to put our faith in the only one who's faithful. So we put that shield of faith on. God is the Savior. We find our salvation, our safety, our security in Him alone. Not in the things that we can do. Not in other things that claim to have the way. No, only in Jesus Christ do we have that helmet of salvation. And then finally, God is the Word. Jesus Christ is the living Word who's revealed himself to us in the Scriptures. And we are now enlisted as soldiers in this army of God, advancing God's kingdom and standing firm against those who would stand against us. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. God has called us into battle, and he has given us everything that we need to find our safety, our security, and our purpose in him. Amen? Amen. In response,